One in four uniformed military members worries about going hungry. That's according to a new RAND Corporation survey, which confirms regular surveys conducted by the armed services themselves. The Pentagon's top enlisted leaders tested testified about the issue of food insecurity at the House Armed Services Subcommittee last week. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr has more. And Alexandra, tell us more about the survey and why it came to be. Well, every two years, the DOD conducts a status of forces survey of active duty members. And that survey includes six questions from the Department of Agricultural that of Agriculture that specifically address food insecurity. Do you get enough to eat? Can you afford food? Are you able to eat a nutritious diet? Those sort of things. And the results aren't in from 2020 yet, but in 2019 or 2016 and 2018, they did find these high numbers of of service members with food insecurity. The profile goes like this. Uh, Food insecurity members are more likely to be early to mid-career enlisted personnel, grades E4 to E6, say. They're single with children, they're married without children, and they're a racial or ethnic minority. They were also disproportionately in the Army and, to a lesser extent, in the Navy. And what was the genesis of the RAND study itself, since the armed services do these themselves periodically? The NDAA actually ordered a study of this to kind of find out where the military was on food insecurity. And then the Department of Defense commissioned the study from RAND. Right. So it's kind of augmenting the work that the military does regularly to determine how much food insecurity there is. That's right. There are just so many different levels of pay in the military that it gets a little complicated, and they tried to figure out where the problem was worse and how it happened. Now, in theory, anything that is a problem for the enlisted ranks is a problem for leadership. And what does leadership say about this? The problem's been around for a while, and the rising house housing prices in the last year and inflation in general seems to have made things a bunch worse. Here's Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy, James Honia. A place like San Diego, California, where we had an increase in housing costs there in greater than 26 percent. Uh, our most junior service members do not make enough money uh, to make ends meet and to have an emergency savings in reserve to handle that kind of an increase while they waited for us to catch up with our BAH increases uh, to offset those expenses. So many of them found themselves deep, well deep into their savings, and, and it's certainly understandable why many of them found themselves food insecure. And I guess the question is, how do they know who might actually be in need of help? Because everybody lives in the same area for a given base. Everybody at a certain level gets the same salary. Yet it seems to be that different people are in different circumstances. You know, that's something that the senior leaders seem to wrestle with. They admitted that it's a little hard to figure out who exactly needs help. The RAND study showed that members' use of food assistance programs was only 14 percent of those classified as food insecure. So 14 percent of people who needed it were were actually seeking assistance. There seems to be some stigmas associated with it. They're ashamed to ask for help. And then also, members are concerned that seeking help for food insecurity or even financial challenges can affect their security clearances. Here's Chief Master Sergeant of the Air Force, Joanne Bass. You know, the numbers are really hard to track. We've been trying to figure this out for the past several years. Um, Some of it is largely in part because, you know, you only understand the numbers of people who might self-identify, but there's a lot of folks who perhaps won't self-identify that they need assistance and help. Um, And so we've really engaged our uh, command teams 
our first sergeants to help us ensure that we are getting a, a really good look at um, what's going on at, at the grassroots level. And presuming there is food insecurity, as the surveys indicate, what are they going to do about it? What did the military leadership, I mean, the people testifying were the top enlisted people, but they're not the ones that can necessarily divert resources to it, like the brass can. That's right. And there are a lot of different levels of pay in the military, and there are different benefits designed to do different things. So they kind of have to figure out where to attack the problem. Service members get a basic allowance for housing, and that's just intended to pay housing costs. The problem is, like Master Chief Honia said, in a year when housing prices go up really quickly, the BAH can't keep up with it. So last year, for example, in September, there were those huge housing crises, and the military went ahead and increased BAH on a temporary basis until their new yearly assessment came up in December. And it's only calculated once a year, so there's always a problem of Will it go up before the year is up? And then if it does go up, people have to pay out of pocket. The other problem comes when a family's assessed for SNAP. SNAP is the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program that's available to everyone, not just military members. But when they calculate it for military members, they include their BAH as part of their income. So it increases their income artificially beyond money that they actually have to spend on food. Here's Sergeant Major of the Army, Michael Grinston. Until we take a holistic look at our pay, we may continue to see the need for soldiers to be food insecure. But I also want to say that no soldier should ever have to go and skip and miss a meal. No soldier, no family should be food insecure in our military. And I do want to thank uh, this committee and everyone for the basic needs allowance and allowing us to increase some of the pay for our service members. And I know that's just recently been put out, and we've just released the Army guidance on how to apply for the basic needs allowance. So I'd like to thank this committee for that. And what was the reaction of the committee? Well, the committee also is very concerned about the the food insecurity, and they were driving the questions on it and asking what can be done and how bad it is. A new thing that they started this year was the basic needs allowance, and it's sort of an extra amount of subsidy meant to close the gap on poverty for these families that fall through the cracks a little bit. There's a couple different things that you have to do to get it. There's an initial screening that the military does, and they notify you if they think you may be qualified for it. And then you have to apply, and you have to apply once a year to be reapproved for it. But that gives you extra money every month just to close that gap and make sure you have enough money to pay for food. Yeah, I almost wonder if there are certain military members that might be subsidized by their families, since they tend to be young, as you say, and many of them are single or young married. Maybe they can say, hey, you know, a hundred bucks a month or a couple hundred bucks from mom or dad might help them with food. Some service members may not have that resource available to them. Well, that's true. And there are lots of kids out there who are doing various things and their families subsidize them that way. The other thing the military is really pushing is being able to have spouses have meaningful jobs. And there are all kinds of programs out there to help them get jobs. Because if there's a second income, that really alleviates a lot of the problems. And then, of course, the other major problem is child care. And with good child care, people can go work. You bet. Yeah, that can be an expensive big-ticket item if not provided by the employer. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. 
David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama. And there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I 
really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it 
you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, I the way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.